Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're up by Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan. Premier, it's been a while since we've talked. Thanks for coming on. And uh, again, congratulations on that uh, election victory. Well, thanks so much, uh, Roy. Thanks for making some time today. Uh, let me start with the pandemic numbers in Saskatchewan. 33rd death today, someone in their 80s, I believe, and uh, 153 new cases in the province. How do you assess what's going on as far as COVID-19 is concerned in Saskatchewan, and what are the actions that you're taking today and going forward? Well, we're having the same challenge that many provinces across the nation are with uh, increasing in numbers and uh, more alarming than that, increasing numbers in our hospitals and in our ICUs. We have, uh, uh, you know, precisely the same challenge that they're having in, in Quebec, Ontario, uh, Manitoba, uh, British Columbia, Alberta, all very, very similar in the Atlantic provinces uh, to a lesser degree. Um, but, the, you know, we're continuing to manage this uh, with the, uh, the best interests of the citizens in mind. What we're trying uh, to do is keep our hospitalizations as low as they as we possibly can. In turn, that keeps your death rate uh, as low as you possibly can as well. We're trying to balance that with keeping as, as many parts of our economy uh, functional as as possible, and we're going to continue to try to do that in the days ahead. And it's it's no easy task for any premier, um, um, and uh, and the relationship that we have with the, the federal government is, is paramount in this. Um, and the relationship that we have with the uh, uh, with the people across the province and adhering to the public health uh, recommendations that are in place across this nation, and also the relationship that we continue to have with the with the business community, ensuring they understand why we're doing what we're doing, and also understanding they have a role to play in this as well in keeping their places of business safe for their staff and for their customers. And and so we're we're trying to balance all of these things, and uh, in in the best interest of the people, province by province, and and collectively across the nation, and. I think it's 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 coming along, but we do have a challenge ahead of us in, uh, in this whatever you want to call it, the second surge or another surge uh, that it, that we're into, and and so we're making some some changes, and I know other provinces are as well. Premier Mo, I asked uh, Premier Kenny this question last weekend, and I want to ask you the same one. Uh, were the federal government to declare a state of emergency or a public health emergency, COVID nineteen related? Does Ottawa have the constitutional right to assume control of health care delivery and mandate and give orders to the provinces, including your province of Saskatchewan? And how would you respond to uh, Mr. Trudeau and his government potentially doing exactly that? How would you react? Well, it, it, it wouldn't be the prudent thing to do at this point in time. Uh, health care has always been delivered by the provinces, and it should continue to be delivered by the provinces, uh, quite frankly, because they delivered better than the federal government uh, could, uh, regardless of what, of what they may think. Um, we need to work together uh, with the federal government and work, you know, hand in glove, really. And we, we are attempting to do that from the Council of Federation table. And Premier Legault is doing an excellent job uh, chairing that table uh, here the last uh, the last couple of months. You know, for example, the, the health care delivery is uh, for the provinces to deliver. Um, there can be some roles for the federal government to play in that in supporting um, financially, uh, and we have asked for a renegotiation of the Canada Health Transfer, and we would look for the federal government to to uh, uh, 
uh, to look at the request that the provinces have and to adhere to that request with unencumbered uh, funding that they had let slip for the last number of decades. Uh, there's another role that the federal government has uh, to play as well, and, and, and this is about you know staying in your lane to, to support all Canadians, and that is um, in, the, in the procurement and ultimately the distribution of a vaccine. Uh, the federal government can be greatly helpful, uh, not only to provinces, but to all Canadians, by ensuring that we are able to be first in line for uh, vaccines that are ready to navigate uh, that approval through Health Canada, and then to ensure that we have sufficient supply of that vaccine and to uh, help uh, and work with the provinces on the distribution of ultimately that vaccine to our first, our most vulnerable Canadians, but eventually uh, to all Canadians that choose to be vaccinated. And so there's there's lots of things for the federal government to do. Um, none of them involve uh, uh, the, the War Measures Act or the Emergency Measures Act being enacted. It's not necessary for uh, the, the work that they have in front of them. A direct message from you and from uh, Premier Kenny. Let me come back to the issue of, uh, of what you do as a society. Lockdowns. The small business community in, in this country, and you know this well, is struggling mightily um, Mr. Kelly, who's the president of the CFIB, has told us repeatedly that 160,000 businesses, small businesses, are in danger, real serious danger of never opening again, of closing, and that's it. Up to uh, maybe 240,000 businesses. Where does where do lockdowns fit as far as you're concerned? Because the economic repercussions of, of letting businesses just wither away are, are, are tremendous, are just, well, we can't sustain it over the long term. So where do lockdowns fit for you, Premier? Well, I, I agree with Mr. Kelly. Uh, the, the, our small business, uh, small businesses in Saskatchewan and across the nation, uh, uh, had a very difficult spring and have had a very difficult summer and into this fall, even uh, as they have been able to open, um, but in, you know, in modified, uh, in, in mod- with modified rules and modified, uh, uh, in modified ways uh, to what they were maybe a year ago, and they've had a, a very challenging year. And they've also risen to the occasion. It's their small businesses that most certainly have done everything they can to take care of their employees and their customers, and my hat's off to uh, every small business owner across across this nation because they most certainly are the very fabric of the business community in, in Canada. And with respect to shutdowns, lockdowns, circuit breakers, whatever you choose to call uh, these uh, things, this would be disastrous for uh, our small business community in this nation and be disastrous for our small business community in Saskatchewan. And that's why uh, we are looking at every other lever that we have to to control the spread of this virus. Every other level, lever that we have available to us uh, to reduce the spread of COVID-19 and to try to minimize in every way that we can the impact on our, our small businesses. You take the restaurant and hospitality sector, for example, um, you know, restaurants are owned by our neighbors and friends in our communities uh, across the province, across the nation. And, and they have done uh, a, a, a relatively good job in, you know, spreading out in, uh, in their, their, um, their, their places uh, of work, spreading the, the people out in Saskatchewan. There's six people at a table. There's dividers quite often. Um, even between uh, those tables, even with the two meters of spread, they have done uh, a tremendous job in revamping uh, their uh, their uh, places of business to keep their their customers safe, to keep their staff safe, and uh, you just my credit to them. And we're going to do everything we can uh, to ensure that they're going to be able to make it through this without a circuit breaker, without a shutdown, or without a lockdown, whichever yeah. terminology you choose. Yeah, Premier, one more question for you. The time goes by so quickly. Mr. Trudeau spoke of the pandemic being an opportunity for an economic reset. 
he seems to be backing away from that now. But uh, how are you and perhaps your fellow premiers reacting to the thought of the uh, pandemic being an opportunity for an economic reset? Well, <laughs> you know, again, that's that's like using terminology like a circuit breaker when it, it, what, what you're saying uh, is a new terminology for something that um, actually, you know, means something quite different. Uh, you know, the industries uh, in Saskatchewan, I always go back to Saskatchewan as the example, um, the industries that are creating wealth and creating jobs in our communities are, are fully based on, um, on, on export-based industries. Uh, we sell things to other areas of the world, so the agri-food agri- products, our energy products, our, our mine products, potash, uranium, um, now venturing into the rare earth minerals. The same can be said for across Canada, whether you're selling innovation, whether you're selling a service, whether you're selling a manufactured product out of Ontario or Quebec, energy out of, uh, out of British Columbia or, uh, or Alberta or Newfoundland. Um, this is what we do. So you aren't going to all of a sudden reinvent a new a new economy uh, because you, you think you can or because you say you can. The very industries that have created wealth in this nation for the last uh, number of decades are going to continue to in the next number of decades. Yes, they're going to use innovation to be um, more environmentally friendly. Yes, they're going to use innovation to do things more efficiently. Yes, um, they're going to use uh, you know innovation and technology to ensure that they are uh, doing th- doing uh, their business among the very best in the world, and they already are our Canadian companies. Uh, that's something we should. I've always said we should be uh, very very proud okay. of. If that's uh, what the federal government means by a, a reset on the uh, the economy here in Canada, well then uh, that I could agree with. Um, if they're thinking about uh, you know doing a, a sharp right turn to uh, simply going to power our economy with windmills and 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 solar panels, um, that actually doesn't work. Um, you need to. Uh, have a much more fulsome discussion than uh, than just saying you're going to you know restart the 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 economy in, in a fully different manner. It, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. So, Premier, since uh, we talked about windmills, I do have to ask you one more question, and uh, we can maybe cover this in about sixty to ninety seconds. Mr. Trudeau's net zero climate bill, which he says cements climate targets, but it can be repealed. Now, how do you view this, and particularly through the lens? of the Premier of Saskatchewan with an ongoing Supreme Court case against the federal government over the arbitrary delivery of a carbon tax on Saskatchewan by the government. Yeah, well, let, let me let me preface. Uh, Saskatchewan, actually, SAS Power has out its largest uh, windmill and, and solar uh, RFPs. Uh, as we speak, I believe we're, we're, we're going into that industry, but we're also building natural gas plants and and carbon, looking at carbon capture and uh, stored enhanced oil recovery plants as well. So windmills are part of the mix, but they, they, they aren't the, the only part of the mix. Uh, listen, the, the net zero legislation introduced the other day uh, builds on, on a narrative here from the federal government of the carbon tax, yes, which we have uh, taken in other provinces, uh, taken the, the federal government to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, the clean fuel standard, which was introduced, which, um, again, um, you know, each of these was introduced. I would say the similarity between each of them is they're introduced without consultation uh, with the provinces or very little consultation with the promise provinces. And this net zero legislation that was introduced uh, the other day uh, follows that roadmap uh, specifically. Um, we had uh, a phone call just uh, prior to the introduction of the bill. So, uh, you know, as we move forward with this, um, I, I don't disagree with the premise of, of uh, the, the legislation. However, the devil is going to be in the details of this once again, and, right. and there's going to have to be recognition of what uh, our Canadian industries are doing, um, agriculture, energy, mining. There has to be recognition of the innovation that they've already deployed. But it's not just small business. 
And it's not just medium-sized business. It's the large businesses in this country that are also feeling the, and tremendously feeling the impact of the pandemic, coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, and industry groups are calling for tailor-made COVID-19 programs to support these hard-hit sectors in the second wave. And they actually do, they do support as well the small business community. The Business Council of Canada sent a letter to Mr. Trudeau, a call for urgent, urgent rather, and uh, simultaneous actions on two fronts. Goldie Hyder is the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Mr. Hyder, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good to be back, Roy. So your council sent a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau three weeks ago, signed by you, in which you implore the federal government to take urgent and simultaneous action on two fronts. One, redouble efforts to stop the spread of the virus so individuals and families in every region can confidently resume their normal activities to the greatest extent possible. Two, we must seize the opportunity to develop a bold and ambitious strategy for growth and renewal. Mr. Hyder, at the end of October, or in the third week of November, why is it necessary for the business community in this country to send that letter to the federal government? Wow. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's been quite the journey for all of us, has it not, Roy? I mean, I've been on so many times, and what frustrates me is we're often saying the same thing. And so I wish I didn't have to write that letter because the truth is there's a number of things that we think, um, you know, would have made a difference and could have made a difference. But and that's primarily around testing, tracking and tracing. And it has to do also with public compliance. But we've 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 just fallen so far behind now. I was talking to a well-known epidemiologist in the country and he said to me, he said, at this stage, Goldie, we just need to kind of muddle through this. Uh, the good news is the vaccines are imminent in terms of sometime early in 2021, potentially at least to get targeted relief to those in long-term care centers and our frontline workers and others. But as you said, um, we're going to have to get through what is a very critical quarter for a lot of businesses here. And I know my friend Dan, uh, I heard you say he's on tomorrow and I've heard him pretty much every day uh, making the case for the small business community. And I'm empathetic to our political leaders as well, because it's, it's certainly not in their bailiwick to know how to manage a, a, a pandemic crisis. But I think we've given too much authority and power over to our public health officials who are not political any more than our political people run health. And so we're really calling on um, the lessons learned over the last nine months or so to make sure that there's some path forward that we can emerge at the other end uh, with an economy that we can grow. Yeah, oh, he, several national business organizations, uh, yours being one, sent uh, another letter to the federal government calling for tailor-made COVID-19 programs in support of the hard-hit sectors. Um so I was looking at, uh, at one aspect of this news story, Mr. Hyder, and it quotes the uh, president and CEO of the Hotel Association of Canada saying, she worries, quote, we could lose at least half of this industry. And, and we're talking about before Christmas. That's staggering. Yeah, I mean, look, it's part of the whole supply chain, right? It starts with having, you know, um, the ability to fly, having the ability to, to, to travel uh, by other modes, uh, train and, and otherwise. It, it requires people to have confidence that they can take a vacation or visit their family. Um, all of those things really come from our response in terms of testing, tracking and tracing. And they come from the public compliance. And, and I think it's easy to blame governments and others, but I think we as citizens need to look at ourselves in the mirror and making sure 
that we're doing all that we can to uh, to prevent the spread, uh, to comply, and to build build confidence. Because the truth is, Roy, all over the world, there are many countries that have their economies moving forward. Uh, they are not in lockdown. Some of them never went into a lockdown. We, we believed that we needed to do that here. But we believed it because we thought that lockdown would allow for the time to certainly save our healthcare system, but also give us the time to get our testing and tracking and tracing done and to get uh, a plan in place to get the businesses to be able to open. Nobody believes that we need more lockdowns. And so these industries that are in distress, uh, you know, they are critical to the economy, uh, to the economy of the country. You mentioned, you know, sort of a hospitality industry, but I would add right. to it the, the retail industry and the energy sector. Those are millions of jobs, um, Roy. And so our message to the government has been, uh, it's good that you're helping individuals, but if you don't uh, target the relief to those distressed sectors, uh, long overdue and frankly, long promised, and I fully expect the economic statement to do that, then we're going to lose those businesses, which in turn means we're going to lose the jobs. And sure, they'll come back one day, but the pain in between is going to be very difficult for people, and we'd like to avoid that. So the message is, and I've heard this from a number of people, a number of business people certainly, that we just cannot afford to absorb major lockdowns any longer. We just can't. There's no, I shouldn't say there's no recovery, but recovery would be extremely difficult, and there would be an eruption of bankruptcies. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, Dan is, uh, Dan Kelly has been making this case a lot about the fairness. And believe me, big business's goal is not to see small businesses shut down. I mean, I don't know of anybody who's been calling for that. Uh, I, I think what, what it comes back to is the issue of, of, a, of a healthy economy requires a healthy population. That means making sure that we have the appropriate testing, tracking, tracing, including rapid testing, which should be coming hopefully Soon, um, we need to be careful not to fall into the trap that the, that the vaccine is a panacea. Uh, it's okay. going to take time. Even when the vaccine comes, we're going to have to rely on the same people who have, uh, some extent, not delivered on the testing and tracking to also distribute the vaccine and to and to deploy it uh, uh, in our citizenry. So there's a lot of things that need to go right. Uh, but in the meantime, I think we have to make sure that Canadians are complying um, with, uh, with, with the public health guidelines. I wish, and we all wish, that there's more consistency in that. In that. We believe that there's a need for more data-based uh, approach uh, and that we need to avoid blanket approaches. I like the phrase that Premier Mo in Saskatchewan uses, you know, it's a slowdown, not a lockdown. Yeah, yeah. we were just talking to him about that a little earlier in the hour. So in the, in the letter that uh, the Business Council of Canada, which you signed and sent to the Prime Minister, the second point that you raise, and you want these, uh, and you're, you're urging the government to take simultaneous action on two fronts, the second one was we must seize the opportunity to develop a bold and ambitious strategy for growth and renewal. And the idea behind that is once the pandemic is either managed or over, then we can take advantage of what we put in place uh, to be ready for that. Are we anywhere close? No, and I think it's because, uh, frankly, we haven't uh, been able to, to do job one well, right, in terms of managing uh, the virus nine months in. But the truth is, uh, you know, this is a seminal moment in the life of this country and how we respond and the foundation that we have in place uh, for post, uh, post uh, you know, the, the conclusion of this pandemic is going to be critical for the growth of our economy. And ultimately, we've got to start paying back at some point in time <laughs> the deficit that we've incurred. Uh, and, and while that's going to be a long road, we want to make sure that the decisions that we make today, including not unnecessarily 
uh, piling on the deficit for you know legacy projects or overstimulating the economy. Right, we have spent more than any other country in the world. Uh, and that's why you're seeing record savings having in the country. Now, the good news is that's all hopefully going to be spent um, one day when Canadians feel confident about the economy. But we need to have a growth strategy. We need to have a jobs plan. And we need to be doing as Wayne Gretzky is famous for saying, right, like look to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And frankly, I think we have the capacity to manage the present, but also look ahead to the future. Canadians rely on their governments and their business leaders to, to be able to do both. How much time do we have? Well, I mean, look, uh, I, I, I want to be optimistic. I want to I want to um, recognize that these vaccines have the real potential to be, a, a, you know, a game changer. Uh, but but we are still talking, you know, six months out here. Right, Roy? I mean, it's a while before these are readily available and, and, and being deployed. Uh, and even that there may be some optimism, too. We're going to have to have a plan to get us through 2021. And as I said, the public has to do their part first and foremost. Let's not be debating masks. Let's not be, you know, being nonchalant about our social interactions and so forth. I, more than anyone, would like to see our economy uh, you know, continue to, to grow, to get restarted, businesses working. We can do this if we are compliant with the, with the rules that are being put in place. And governments, um, you know, we had a lockdown thinking that you'd have the time to get these, these, uh, the testing, tracking, tracing done well. You know, I'm sorry, but you don't get another lockdown because uh, it's just unaffordable for, for these businesses and for these individuals. So they can play the targeted response that they are uh, in certain regions. But um, we've got to figure out a way to keep the economy going through this very critical quarter for so many businesses. Dr. Neil Rao is an infectious diseases specialist, Halton Region in Ontario. He's an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Rao is calling for a balanced response to the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Rao, thanks very much for coming on the show today. And when you speak of a balanced approach to dealing with COVID-19, an approach that you have concerns, according to the Anthony Fury column that I read, you have concerns for backing away from, what does that balanced model look like and why are we backing away from it? Well, the balance was about not focusing on case counts every day and looking at the bigger picture. And also the balanced approach was about keeping our lives running to some degree and not ending up in a situation where we're shutting down people's lives and causing other non-COVID harms to people in return for trying to suppress the virus. And during the summer, we wrote a letter to the uh, Prime Minister, a number of us, suggesting that it would be reasonable to look at more than trying to suppress the virus and not repeating the errors of the winter. But somehow that's what we've done. And here we are. So yeah, I can either not, cry or swear on radio, but I don't think you want me to do that. <laughs> it's not just you either, as you point out. There are other doctors who've joined you on this. And I was reading in Anthony's column about an infectious disease specialist at McMaster University who says, look, if you're going to be quoting the uh, the COVID statistics and the numbers statistics, then also quote the economy and the and the suicides. Yeah, well, the drug overdoses, too, and the domestic violence and the uh, delayed care. We've done a bit of a better job this time around where we're not stopping every other form of care, and we haven't closed schools, and we haven't done the same thing everywhere. But at least what's going down on the hardest hit in terms of most restricted regions, I think we are repeating a lot of the errors. Like, I'll give you an example from today. I'm on call today in Alton Healthcare. I saw a patient who tested positive for COVID two weeks after someone in her family was positive. This person had no symptoms at all. It 
turns out this is somebody whose infection is resolved and who's probably no longer infectious. But right now, the way we count cases, if a test is positive, you're a case. And so we started focusing a lot on PCR-positive results that don't necessarily represent active infections. They represent historic infections. So that's one of the problems with case counting by PCR. Now, some people with PCR-positive results have the real thing. They end up in hospital. They can end up very sick from COVID. But we're also counting a lot of people with resolved infections or even false positive results if they're being tested when the chance of COVID is very low. It's better than what we were doing in the summer where we were inviting people to be tested for no reason, but we're making decisions based on really bad data, and that's why chasing daily case counts is crazy because the more you test, the more positives you get. So then we said, okay, let's correct for that. Let's look at the percentage of people positive. It still doesn't account for the fact that some people have resolved infections that we're picking up. We really should be watching what's happening at the hospital level, what's happening with intensive care units. Are hospitals really overflowing with COVID patients or not? And the only place so far that's had a bit of strain was Brampton. They were able to transfer out patients. So why are we going to be so drastic and shut down all of society when the system is not at the breaking point? It's not Bergamo, Italy. So you uh, you clearly are not in favor of the COVID zero strategy either, which calls for stringent lockdowns across a region, uh, maybe a province, maybe even a nation until the COVID cases reach zero. Uh, Your concerns about that are what, economic? Oh, well, not just economic, practical. I don't think you can even make it happen. I mean, we'd have to do a lockdown for not just four weeks. We'd be looking at four months to get there with the number of cases we have now. And it would really mean living like they do in some very repressive regimes. Places that have achieved suppressive approaches do not have civil liberties. Places like Singapore that have active backward contact tracing approaches, have everybody under closed circuit TV, they're forced to have a contact tracing app, and they are monitored and and treated very harshly if they don't comply. This is a place that canes people, you know, judicial caning. We don't want to become a society like that where we give up our civil liberties. I'm not saying people shouldn't obey public health orders as they are now, but I'm, I'm not trying to be an anarchist, but I'm saying to get to a COVID zero space, that is even fringe amongst the pro lockdown public health maximalist crowd that is really out there but even aiming for as few cases as possible comes with a huge cost for example closing down restaurants and businesses and shopping centers those are huge economic costs there's a lot of people not the business owners but the people who work in those businesses who are hurting people who work in restaurants are disproportionately female servers who live on tips a lot of them are single moms i remember seeing a single mom who was a supply teacher in the first wave she couldn't work as a supply teacher and she couldn't work as a server i mean this is this, these are the people you're hurting as well they, they don't want to live on serve they actually want to have dignity of labor and make a good living not just a subsistence level of living that's being offered by these programs not to mention who's going to pay for all of this I, I call it the covid bar bill the bar tab who's going to pick it up at the end all of this so, i was talking to a young parent last evening uh, who had concerns and said, look, the measures we're taking now for kids specifically, hand washing, masking, uh, are kids going to end up with a weaker immune system as they grow older, potentially? I don't know about that, but I don't think we should worry so much about kids. Kids are the receivers, not the transmitters. And if mm-hmm. kids get it, it's not really a big consequence to them. I don't know why we close 
classes when we have a few cases in classrooms. I think we should be more worried about them bringing it home to a grandparent as part of a multi-generational family. Okay. Maybe we need to find solutions for, for that household situation, but going and closing the classes and worrying about kids, I, I think it's crazy. Ultimately, the virus is going to spread in the pediatric population, too, and they are going to get it, and there's not much we can do about it. This virus is I have, really a, I have about. I have about 30 seconds. Can the mRNA vaccine negatively affect people it's receiving? And again, I have about 30 seconds for your answer. I, I don't think it's negative, but I think getting it into people's arms in a timely fashion is going to be a challenge. It won't all arrive at once like it does in Hollywood movies. It's going to be a slow rollout, and we're going to have challenges with that, even if it works I, well in its face. Ipsos polling for the Halifax Security Forum reveals just 42% of citizens in 28 countries believe China will have a positive impact on world affairs over the next decade. We're joined on the program by Vice Admiral Mark Norman, retired Royal Canadian Navy, of course, and uh, former second-in-command of the CAF. Always an honor to speak with the Admiral. Admiral Norman, what about the uh, Ipsos polling for the Halifax Security Conference? Only 42% of citizens in 28 countries believe China will have a positive influence on global affairs in the next decade. Where do you rate them? Well, I, I think uh, those people who are polled are, are showing um, a legitimate uh, and valid concern about uh, what China is up to. It'd be interesting, and I think if you, uh, if you or your readers uh, read the analysis in the polling data, you'll see that they speculate that if the polls had been conducted even just uh, a few months ago or a year ago before COVID, uh, they might have got a different response. Um, I think people are legitimately concerned about China. They're not sure what they're up to, and what they're seeing is uh, a series of actions on a variety of different fronts, uh, economic, military, cyber, uh, as you mentioned in your intro. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, as we look ahead to the months and years uh, coming forward, we should be legitimately concerned. Yeah. So then in the 2020 National Cyber Threat Assessment, the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity lists China again, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, as presenting the, quote, greatest strategic threats, end quote, to our national infrastructure, including our elections. Do you agree, Admiral, and are we equipped at all to counter such cyber efforts to derail our governments, our business, and our way of life? I do agree. I think the report uh, is a really good uh, piece of work, and I would commend it to uh, your readers who are interested. It's available online, um, and it's been accurately reported in the media. Um, are we equipped? Well, you know, I think uh, in very simple terms, we need to look at two dimensions of our ability to respond. The first one is competence, or competency, uh, and the second one is capacity. I think as it relates to competence, we are very capable. We do have um, very good competence uh, in this area, and it's still continuing to grow, and it's an area of uh, necessary and ongoing investment in Canada and across our, our allies, because let, let's let's uh, be clear here, we're not in this alone, although we have to look after ourselves uh, first and foremost. And the second area is capacity, and that's, I think, where... Um, we, we suffer, uh, as do our allies, but we in particular. Um, I don't think anybody imagines that we're going to be able to grow the kind of cyber capacity that exists in a country like China. Well, when I last checked, we were talking hundreds of thousands of individuals who are dedicated purely uh, to China's cyber efforts. Um, but uh, this is an area where we need to grow. And, and unfortunately, this requires uh, investment. It requires a commitment by government and 
Uh, it also requires that uh, people, especially young people, uh, see this as an area um, of both personal interest and of professional interest, and that they're prepared to get in there and uh, and help out with our security. Admiral, you, you said we have to take care of ourselves. Uh, what does Canada's military most require in order to perform its assigned task? What do we need? <laughs> well, That's a two-hour uh, question, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, we need a lot of um, what we have now. We need more of it. We need capacity, and, and that goes back to uh, what I said a minute ago. Um, you know, specifically as it relates to cyber, uh, the Armed Forces has a nascent uh, and, and very good cyber uh, competency, um, but it is uh, limited in terms of its capacity. It's an area that requires growth. I think what we need is we need uh, continued commitment and investment um, by governments, successive governments. Uh, we need to stop using uh, defense as a political football. Uh, we need to look at this seriously. Uh, we need to look at long-term commitments to the security of our nation and, and of our allies. And, um, you know, there are many shopping lists that are produced, but it, it's more than just shopping lists. It really right. comes down to commitment. Yeah. Right. I was looking at some uh, polling from Ipsos Public Affairs, and uh, they show that in Canada, not just in Canada, but internationally, there is low social cohesion and if you're asking what low social cohesion is, I did the same thing. Let me just give you another line here, and we'll ask Daryl Bricker about it in a moment. More Canadians are weak on social cohesion in this country than are solid. And internationally, the situation is worse. Now, social cohesion, low social cohesion, can tear a society apart. This is serious business. We're going to talk to Daryl, and then we'll take some phone calls. Mr. Bricker is also the uh, author of Next, which I keep saying is the book that all Canadians should have, must have, because it really spells out what is coming next in this country, demographically and otherwise business as well. Darrell, thank you for the time. And, and has, how, how has the pandemic affected Next? Well, it's interesting. I get a lot of questions from people saying, well, you basically wrote this before the pandemic. And it's like, uh, well, yes, that's true. Uh, but uh, the truth is, everything that I've talked about in the book is being accelerated by the pandemic. So uh, just for the, uh, the sake of uh, our listeners who may not yet be aware of uh, what's in the book and what you talk about, give us an idea of what is, before we talk about social cohesion, we'll have time to do that. But what is coming next in this country of ours, where we stand now with the acceleration because of the pandemic? Well, one of the things that we took really for granted in this country, and it's quite contrary to a lot of other countries in the world right now, is that our, our population will continue to grow at a fairly robust rate. Uh, but what's happened as a result of the pandemic is our fertility rate, which was already trending down quite rapidly. So the number of kids we were having uh, to come into our population has absolutely been crushed. In fact, in the last month, uh, Statistics Canada reported the lowest rate of fertility recorded as long as they've been recording fertility. Combined with the fact that immigration has almost been choked off and the fact that we're getting more deaths in the older part of the population, which is the fastest growing part of the population, as a result of COVID, has pushed us down below 1% for the first time in a very long time. So what's happened before is our economic growth was partially being driven by this expansion of our population. It stopped. So we have a country that's in flux, population-wise, industry-wise, pol politics. The country is uh, is in flux, and um, 
not a good thing, not a good place to be. Well, yeah, especially when you see that the people who are supposed to understand the country keep writing things about how they don't. <laughs> I don't mean, I mean, don't mean to be too direct about it, but might as well be direct. I mean, uh, you know, all of this, my favorite articles these days are the ones talking about, you know, the new nirvana for, for downtown, in which they don't say a word about what happens to the people who live in the suburbs. It's like they don't even exist. But the, the truth about the suburbs is the most rapidly growing part of their population in Canada is a suburban country that commutes by car. That's just a fact. Yeah. And we hear about all of these things from, you know, people who basically, you know, work in newsrooms and live downtown. And they're supposed to be understanding the world, but really the, the world they understand ends outside of the borders of the downtowns of their cities. So you want to talk about social cohesion. This is one of the big issues that we have, is that our newsrooms have become so insulated and so, um, I would say, uh, uh, um, uh, non-diverse in terms of not necessarily their, their identity of the people who are working there, but their knowledge of what's going on in the country. And whenever I say these kinds of things, people say, well, you know, that's absurd. Well, Tell me the next time you see a, a story that really uh, connects with somebody who lives in the suburbs and really appreciates the life that they're living. Because those are the people who are driving not only our politics in, in this country, but they're also driving uh, what's going to happen in terms of our economy and our population. And that's really what I wrote about next. And it's just a fantastic book. Again, I, I say this all the time, but it should be in every classroom in this country, the ones that are open. And if it's not, they should have it in your homes. And you should read it because it's really, really, really first-class important material. So, Daryl, what is social cohesion? It's the stuff that keeps us together. It's the, the glue that makes society work. I mean, one of the best ways that you could describe it is trust, that you trust that the system is fair, that it works for you. Uh, that you trust the motivations and uh, behaviors of, of uh, your neighbors are going to be acceptable, and that you feel that the society works for you. Um, your political institutions, for example, you trust that they're going to make the right decisions. So it's that thing that keeps societies together. And what do the numbers that you receive, that you have compiled in Canada, suggest is happening as far as that trust and that social cohesion in this country is concerned? Well, Two things on that. One, uh, that social cohesion is being challenged in this country, and it's being challenged by a lot of change. But what's particularly troubling, I think, in the data is that over the space of the last six months, we've seen it decline further. Uh, and uh, there's only one thing that you can point to that, that, that could be potentially causing this, and that's, uh, and, and that's what we're going through with, uh, with dealing with the COVID crisis. So uh, there's a lot of challenge right now going on. Uh, when it comes to our social cohesion, and uh, we're going to need that cohesion to get through this. So uh, Canadians then are questioning what's being done and what's being said and what's being presented and what's being argued and what's being enacted by political uh, entities, by governments at, the, at all levels, correct? Yes, and they're also questioning the, the behavior and activities of the neighbours. Uh, and we see this in survey after survey where people say, well, I'm doing the right thing, but I don't trust anybody else to do it. And if you want to look at the barrier to getting people back out, you know, when we eventually start coming back out, and this is something that we saw during the summer, it was people feeling that they were going to do the right thing, but they couldn't go to places where they, they couldn't trust other people to do the right thing. Yeah. So that's that's what we're really into right now, where it's not just... It's, I think the easiest part of this is to sort of look at the political institutions and say, well, we don't trust you. But that's you know, been something fairly prevalent. The, the bigger problem that we've got is people are looking to their neighbors and they're saying, I don't trust you. It's like standing in line in a store at a checkout. And if you're not exactly 
two meters away from the person in front of you or the person behind you, if you sort of slip backwards toward them, hey, they'll, they'll be on you. And and there is that instant uh, lack of, uh, of trust that, that you're doing the right thing. They are, but you're not, and so we're at each other. And And that's all part of it, right? Exactly. And that's why when you see things like, okay, we're opening, you know, restaurants up for, you know, indoor dining, like we did at the latter part of the summer, people weren't going. I mean, they were starting to go, but they really weren't going to any great degree. You know, you reopened the movie theaters, people didn't go back. Well, why didn't they go back? Well, um, they could wear a mask, they could go in, they could watch it, but they were really uncomfortable with what they thought other people might be doing in those situations. So the type of strong social cohesion you have in a place like, interestingly enough, China, so when you go out and you ask people, you know, about social cohesion, the one that's right at the top of the list is China, um, and and what the Chinese uh, population reports to us, you know, there's this great sense of social order, they feel that, uh, you know, they they, they fall into line in order to to make certain things happen. And you can look at the bad parts and the good parts of that, but that's just a cultural predisposition. We don't have that predisposition to the same level in Canada. They especially don't have that predisposition in places like the United States. But there are other countries that are even further down the list, like places like Russia. So uh, when social cohesion fails, and and the numbers are greater now as far as uh, not trusting one another or not being socially um, tied together, when that starts to happen in in uh, larger numbers, uh, society is is threatened. And how far are we from being in some danger here? Well, it's a number that we're going to be tracking really closely. And the other part that comes out of this, Roy, that's really important is it's not everybody feeling that way. The people who are really feeling that way are people who are younger. They're people who are lower income. They're people who are more precarious in our society. So, you know, um, and I, I, I know I've know i said this before on your on your show, you know, so we keep reading all of these articles, and I was through the New York Times and the Golden Mail today about, uh, you know, how work, work is going to change for workers. And they're talking about, like, people who are on Zoom calls with their cats running over their, their keyboard. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, no, the most common worker category in Canada for men is truck drivers. And when was the last time you saw anything other than there's going to be fewer of them because we're going to be getting rid of trucks? Well, exactly. Yeah, so we've got this mentality right now when we're talking about what Canada is. There's just not any representation of who we really are. And the people who are on the outside of that conversation are sticking up their hands and saying, hey, this is having a whole different effect on me. And the institutions aren't really recognizing that are dealing with it. And that's where we're seeing the fray. So um, how would, final question for you, how would this year's numbers, the most current numbers, how would they compare with two years ago, three years ago? Uh, They've been fairly consistent over the last little while. We see little bubbles. So, for example, in places like the prairies, particularly, you know, under the Trudeau administration, we've seen that get worse. No doubt about that. But, you know, most other parts of the country have been going reasonably at the same sorts of level. Uh, but now that we're in the midst of this COVID crisis, we're starting to see a fray at the edges. Interesting. And, and concerning. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 